My name is Andrea Barnwell Brownlee, and I am the director of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to a special episode of Be Your Own Muse, the museum's original podcast series. Like many of us, when I learned of David Driscoll's passing on April 1st, 2020, I felt a profound sense of loss. Loss for his wife, Mrs. Thelma Driscoll, and the entire Driscoll family. A loss for two generations of art historians, artists, and curators that he mentored and championed. And an exceptional loss for humankind. In recent days, many friends and associates have been sharing the most beautiful and private reflections on social media. In addition, media outlets have chronicled David's humble beginnings. They've described his landmark exhibition, Two Centuries of Black American Art in 1976, as a watershed moment. They've reflected on the brilliance of his paintings, which often combined relevant social commentary and visual splendor. They've also remarked on the importance of the David C. Driscoll Center for the study of visual arts and culture and African-Americans and the African diaspora at the University of Maryland. But more than anything, they have marveled at what a generous human being he was. David Driscoll was also a fearless advocate for historically black colleges and universities and the museums, galleries, and art programs on those campuses. He is frequently associated with Talladega College, with Howard University and Fisk University. The visual arts and the museum at Spelman College are also the proud and privileged beneficiaries of his generosity. The time he spent at Spelman College over several decades suggested that he was particularly fond of the college and that he respected what we have been building here and this community is richer for that. So today, as we reflect on David's life and legacy, I wanted to invite a few special friends to join me for a special episode of Be Your Own News. Before I introduce them, I wanted to take a moment to share some additional context. Over the years, David has made an impact on the lives and careers of many people who are associated with Spelman. President Mary Schmidt Campbell recently shared that he made an impact on her early career when she was a curator and the director of the Studio Museum in Harlem. David was also a friend, mentor, and colleague to so many Spelman faculty in the arts, as well as other disciplines, beginning in the 1980s and 1990s. Dr. Arturo Lindsay, Janelle C. Holloway, Dr. Okua McDaniel, Lev Mills, Charnel Holloway, and Dr. Amalia Amaki come immediately to mind. As the president of the Clara Elizabeth Jackson Foundation, David played a vital role in establishing the Camille Olivia Hanks Cosby Academic Center here on Spelman's campus in 1996. It has been so very special to view photographs over the last several days of him participating in public programs on art and culture on Spelman's campus over many, many years. In 2014, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation invited the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art in partnership with the Department of Art and Art History, 
which is now the Department of Art and Visual Culture, to submit a proposal to pilot a curatorial studies program. David had an unwavering commitment to growing the field of African-American art. And he frequently reminded us that African-American art is American art. It should be no surprise that he was the first person I called to share Spellman's news. He enthusiastically supported our strategy, which included increasing the number of academic courses, prioritizing mentoring, and ensuring that our students regularly have access to a variety of experts, including art historians, curators, arts educators, and other museum professionals. So today I'm joined by Dr. Kirsten Pybuick, Professor of Art History at the University of New Mexico, Naima Keith, the Vice President to Education and Public Programs at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and Valerie Cassell Oliver, the Sydney and Francis Lewis Family Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. So thanks so much for joining me today to reminisce and reflect on the life and legacy of David Driscoll. You all know that David was so revered, so respected, and so loved that I could have asked any number of colleagues to join me today. However, I invited you three for very specific reasons. Like David, you all have said yes whenever I've asked you to participate in a roundtable discussion or a conversation or a talkback session with our students. Over the years, you've helped introduce our students to a range of professional possibilities. You have each demonstrated a commitment to growing the field. And finally, as recipients of the David C. Driscoll Prize in African American Art and Art History, which is a prestigious honor awarded by the High Museum of Art each year, we share a very special bond. So Kirsten, Naima, and Valerie, you all know that I'm constantly beating that legacy drum and we're keenly aware that we stand on the broadest of shoulders and that we have enormous shoes to fill. But Valerie, I'd like to turn to you first. I'd love to know, what's your fondest interaction with David? Well, first of all, thank you for having this, creating this opportunity to discuss Dr. Driscoll and um, to invite us to participate. I'm, I'm really honored to do so. I would say my fondest memory of David would be on the dance floor at the High Museum, dancing to Mustang Sally. And uh, <laughs> it just shows even, and I think that that could not have been more than, I don't know, four years ago. So we're talking about, you know, at the age of 84 on the dance floor um, uh, without, without uh, missing a beat and just lively and full of life and full of joy. Um, there were other moments, of course, that are far more profound and serious, but that just gives a sense of the the liveliness that existed within him. Yes, there was um, a very um, a strong commitment to the field and a strong commitment to mentorship. Um, and steadily building a legacy, but he really loved to let loose and have a wonderful time and, uh, and remain forever youthful in that. 
Um, so I was really, uh, that is my fondest memory. Um, and I was trying to go back in time to think maybe when I could have even first met him. And it had to be while I was a graduate student at Howard. I, I don't think I registered in that moment exactly who this man was. But I know that he was a steadfast fixture uh, during the Porter Colloquium um, series, which have now reached, I think, um, almost 30 years. It's 30-year um, point. But I was one of the earliest. Dr. Coleman, uh, who's my academic father, um, asked me to, or cajoled, or browbeat me to present uh, during that inaugural colloquium. And I do remember Dr. Driscoll very fondly at that time being extremely encouraging to a, a very young and uh, unsteady graduate student. So that just shows the, the, the arc, if that had to be in 1990, the arc of his presence in the field and his um, profound impact and also his just amazing um, ability to, to just be human and to be joyful in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned really how he sort of modeled behavior. You know, he really, really, he didn't just talk about growing the field. He didn't just give that lip service. He modeled it at occasions and events such as the Porter Colloquium. But but Kirsten, in that vein, I'd love it if you sh- if you would share a bit about what you learned directly or indirectly from David. This is Kirsten, and um, the thing that's really special about the Driscoll Prize is that it alternates between art studio and art history. Uh, I went to predominantly white institutions for higher education, and the places that I went, art studio and art history were separate. Um, They were mistrustful of one another. They, art historians tended to treat artists as if they were unreliable narrators. And uh, there was just bad blood all around. But David, who was an artist and an art historian, who was an author, an educator, a gifted and brilliant speaker, he, he, he was all of those things in one. And he really gave us a path. Uh, he sh- he shown the way to um, integrating our most creative selves in one body. And I'm I'm so grateful. I don't know when I first met Dr. Driscoll, but I knew of him. Um, as I said, I went to predominantly white institutions, and my professors didn't teach African American art. They had no idea it existed, except I had one professor who was a Quaker and who was conscious of the things he didn't know, put together a symposium and gave us things to read. And one of those things, one of those books was David Driscoll's 200 Years of African American Art. That book, it helped me to stand firm as an art historian who 
insisted on contextualizing African-American creativity within the history of the United States. And so I, I really, I'm just heartbroken and so grateful. Uh, and I had a question for all of you. Um, did you go to historically, a uh, historically black college or university? And if so, how did that affect your uh, relationship to David? And if not, how did that affect your relationship? Wow, that's a good question. Oh, yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I was going to say, you know, my undergrad, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, where we had as many as 500 people in one room for intro classes, all save for maybe English uh, literature. Um, but for graduate school, I went to Howard. So um, that's where I met some of the most extraordinary people. You know, Howard was still um, in a space where it was, uh, revered and um, so well connected to the continent and the diaspora. I mean, I met so many people. Um, Dr. Coleman, of course, was there. He's the one who recruited me, my academic dad. And um, you also had people like Sundar Bogosian and the folks who were part of the Afro-Cobra group. I mean, that's where I met so many artists. And I heard of so many things that supported black artists that I had never heard of before. I didn't know who these people were and uh, and what these institutions were. Um, it was like a parallel universe to the field. Um, and I was really surprised. You know, I, I'm incredibly thankful. I mean, I was there when Lois Maylou Jones was still alive, when James Lucine Wells was still alive. And when you think about the bridges um, that Dr. Driscoll David had connected. You know, he was there with Porter, you know, and he was there. He knew these individuals when they were instructors and professors at Howard, uh, not to mention, you know, Aaron Douglas, who was at Fisk, uh, who he replaced, or any of the people who we now read about in books. These are living, he was a living legacy, you know, and I felt very fortunate to be around people who now um, are part of the the the, the, the legends, if you will, uh, part of those histories. So it's really profound to have had that experience for me, you know. Yes, I am Mrs. Naima. Um, I went to Spelman. I um, I went in '99 uh, and graduated 2003. I um, it's funny, when we were talking, I was trying to figure, remember when I met Dr. Driscoll. And I think like many of us, I just couldn't, I can't pinpoint the exact moment, maybe just because his name looms so large um, that it's, you know, you almost kind of confuse the man and the myth, you know, that kind of, like when you actually met him versus like when you've read about him or, you know, um, talked about him. So, um, yes, I, you know, deeply, um, I greatly benefited, I think, from my time at Spelman and, and that kind of charting my my career and my path um, because I was, you know, inundated from day one of discussions about, you know, artists of color and, um, you know, exhibitions and people and curators and art, you know, so it was a, there's definitely not something I was lacking um, in undergrad. I went to UCLA for graduate school and I don't want to say it was a complete opposite because I think there were certainly professors there that um, you know, we're, we're focused on artists of color, 
um, but it certainly wasn't the um, at the forefront of the conversation like it was in Spelman. So, mm-hmm. um, yes, no, I, I A, went to an HBCU, and then, you know, B, I think uh, it felt like David was a part of every conversation that we had in class. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, Naima, I'm so glad that you, you mentioned sort of the undergraduate experience at Spelman. Of course, I too am a Spelman alumna, and yeah. I did my graduate work at at Duke, and I had the great fortune of working with Dr. Richard Powell, and of course, he already knew David Driscoll, and he is a Morehouse alumnus, and just an incredibly brilliant thinker and scholar and professor. And so, although I was at Duke, in so many ways, I felt that I was always connected to Mm -hmm. not only Spelman as my alma mater, but also to a series of HBCUs. I also don't remember exactly when it was that I met David, but I do know that it was Rick Powell that planted the seed for me to meet him. So when we start talking about these legacies and the incredible force that is HBCUs, it's something that we don't talk about enough. And as we talk about what the field is going to look like after we get through the other side of this, and we will get through another side, I have an ongoing hope and um, something that I'm very excited about. And that is that there will be a real focus and examination at museums and galleries that are on the campuses of HBCUs. There is a real need for professionals to decide that they want to not only work in museums or galleries specifically, but they really, really want to invest time at HBCUs. So I'm I'm nurturing that. I am excited about it. It's something that I feel is is overdue, but I really do hope that people start to really reimagine what their lives and careers could be like at HBCUs. And may I interject and just uh, say that that legacy, that bridge, um, you know, Rick Powell also went to Howard. um, And so when you think about how all of these uh, individuals who had their foundational moments at these HBCUs have now found ourselves, themselves, out in the world in all these different places. You know, you cannot think um, or you cannot but hope that um, the sort of legacies of these HBCUs are are somehow um, intact, you know, um, just given the sheer impact um, that they've had. And Look who's who are the sort of front lines uh, or generationally who have been at the front lines of some of the most significant institutions, whether they're culturally specific or not. Um, you could trace these roots back uh, to these HBCUs. And I'm, Andrea, I'm so um, just so um, heartened by what you have created at Spelman not only the exhibition program, but the curatorial program. Um, that has been such an important p- 
part of continuing this legacy. It really, really is. So um really thrilled to see that it's now turned into a, a, a consortium amongst all the HBCUs that are in the Atlantic area, Atlanta area, and um, hopefully that could be something that could be replicated at different um, regions, you know. Well, thank you. Um, launching that as a pilot but seemed like so many years ago, you never really know what is going to happen. I remember having these incredible meetings with colleagues, professors that were in the, de- in the Department of Art and having these incredible conversations and imagining what it could be. Because, you know, Spelman has always mentored students and before there was a, a pilot program, but to formalize this was such an exciting opportunity. So doing this together and thinking about what it could be and then looking, you know, less than 10 years later, and we have this incredible grant, we have incredible leadership, we have this opportunity to truly, truly take this to a totally different level. But thank you for that. You just never know what is going to evolve from a pilot stage. And it's a very, very exciting moment. So Naima, you know, when I, when I think about you know, our time at Spelman. And I I think about how he was often in and out, on and off that campus, you know, participating in various programs. But I'd love to know, based on your interactions with him, what what made him so special? Why was he such a special man? I think we've touched on so many different things, as as Valerie mentioned, we've all mentioned, um, just how generous and supportive um, he's been for all of us, or many of us, um, especially as students or as graduate students or as young curators, um, just being that person that's, you know, coming to openings, coming to shows. I've, I've seen him at so many different events, um, just being supportive. But I would say that my, I don't want to be my fondest memory, but also something that just made him very special is that he was honest. Um, during the um, Huey Copeland's year that he won the Driscoll Prize, which was, which was last year, 2019. Um, I had the occasion of sitting next to Dr. Driscoll um, on the other side of Dr. Driscoll, and then Huey was on the other side. And we started talking about his time at LACMA when he was organizing Two Centuries. And he knew, of course, that I worked there. And he took you know, the time to tell me just about how difficult it was to organize that show during that time, that he faced a lot of adversity, that everyone obviously was not very supportive of him being a curator there, of or of him organizing the exhibition, um, you know, it's it's well documented that the head of education um, resigned over her feelings and thoughts about him organizing that, that exhibition, and that the um, curator of American art at LACMA at the time also left um, in protest of him organizing that exhibition. So I was familiar with that history, but I think him telling me directly and him wanting to know, um, him wanting me to know just how special it was that I was there now and how much it meant for him um, to see a woman of color, a person of color in my position at LACMA and how much that meant, but that also that I also stand on shoulders was just a moment that I will never forget. And I was so glad that I was able to capture that moment in a photograph, but that also I just had that memory. So again, I think he was just you know, very, very supportive of, of me. He would send me emails whenever he would see something about me in the paper or um, that he would hear about you know, a development or about an exhibition. But I think that conversation um, and that him wanting, I guess, for me to understand um, what 
LACMA was like then, but what LACMA is like now, I think, was, is something that I will always um, hold dear. So very generous. I'm, I'm so thankful that we have all had an opportunity to spend that type of time with him, to have those sorts of interactions with him. But Andrea, I would actually ask you, what's your what's your fondest interaction mm-hmm. with David? Because I know, given the fact that you have been overseeing the museum for quite some time, I know you've had several different. You mentioned at the outset of the conversation, you you call him, you called him, um, you know, many different times, and had opportunities to to spend a lot of time with him. What's what's your fondest memory with David? I would say really spending time with him away from the college setting away from the institutional setting in general was very, very special. And I'm thinking in particular of spending time with him um, over a summer up in Maine and what it meant to get away from all the noise and to just really, really park with family. You know, we all know um, what an extraordinary family man he was. So to spend time with my husband and my daughter, with him and his wife and his nephew, Rodney, up in Maine, and just to quiet all of the noise that was going on, um, it was really, really special. The advice that he would give, oftentimes without seeming like he was giving advice, was Mm -hmm. something that I will always cherish. And when I think about how he mentored, the very deliberate ways that he mentored. Um, he wasn't one to be heavy-handed. He would tell you about his experience, and he would tell you about what he, he, he thought of the situation, but he would never tell you how to behave. You know, He wouldn't tell you how to respond in any scenario. And we had a lot mm-hmm. of those conversations up in Maine. At that point, I had been the director of the museum at several years and was thinking about a number of, of crossroads. And I just remember him being this very steady, guiding, amazing force. So it really wasn't in a classroom or a colloquial setting or an institutional setting, but truly my fondest memories with him were completely in, in relaxed and unprofessional settings. And I'll just never forget those. I will cherish those mm-hmm. those times forever. But, you know, I'm glad you mentioned, Valerie, that Mustang Sally was, <laughs> was, the, was the law of the land because there was something so special about seeing him every single Triscoll dinner dancing with Mrs. Driscoll. Mm-hmm. When we talk about a love of life, we're also talking about, you know, the love of his life. And it was just always so special to see them on the dance floor without fail after the meal had been served and all the remarks had been made. So I know that um, in the coming months, we will celebrate a new Driscoll Prize winner. But mm-hmm. I'm glad that you um made us reflect on his time on on the dance floor. But I'd love to spend some time talking with you all about students. And, you know, Kirsten, you have this exceptional way of talking about how you 
how you teach, your methodological approach to teaching. And I'm reflecting on the incredible remarks that you made when you accepted the Driscoll Prize several years ago. Would you share a bit about the comments that you made? I think I've learned the most about art and art making from my studio students. And they have helped me to understand process, but they've also helped me to understand generosity and and that to create is an act of generosity. And so we have to make our teaching creative and, and acknowledge it as a creative act. And so to study and to teach art, I, I see, and, and to create art are acts of generosity. And as I said before, David embodied all of that for me. I have um, learned so much from him, even before I knew him, as I said, and getting to know him and getting to watch him in action was also an education. One of the times I remember most is at the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, he was the keynote speaker for the Henry Ossoa Tanner uh, uh, Symposium, an American legacy, an African-American pioneer. And one of the speakers, in addition to myself, was Dr. Ray Alexander Mentor, who is a descendant of Tanner's. And she, I, I remember overhearing her saying to David, you know, who is this Kirsten Buick? Is she gonna, is she, is she going to be, you know, is she, how is she gonna perform around my ancestor's legacy? And David quietly reassured her, oh, she's okay. She'll, she'll be fine. She'll, <laughs> she'll do a good job. And, and that embodied for me so much of what I had witnessed over the years, and that is the, the aspect of trust. And David, you know, before, before he met me, before he um, uh, saw my work, he, he understood that, that the damage that could be done around African-American art and the legacy of African-American art and so the fact that he had grown to trust me by the year 2007 was a, was an accomplishment, I felt. And I'd watched him with you, Andrea, over the years and how much he trusted you and, and how much he uh, trusted you to maintain the legacy and to maintain the rigorous scholarship around African-American art. And that's what the prize was, right? And that's what the prize is. I remember a conga line at my at my uh, celebration, but the the prize <laughs> is, is so much so much about about trust, and it's mm -hmm. about the past, and it's about the future, and it's about connecting the present to the past and to the future. Well, thank you for mentioning trust. I, I will never forget when he called me to ask me if I would consider writing a book on Charles White. Pomegranate Publications was launching a new series 
that was going to bear his name, the David Teacher Skull Series of African American Art Series of mono, Monographs. I think they had 10 that were planned in all. And um, he invited me to write the first one on Charles White. And I remember thinking so many things in that, in that moment. I was still living in Chicago. I certainly um, I'm well aware that he could have asked any number of people to do so, but he also was committed to what he said before, which was growing the field. At that point, I think I had already defended my dissertation, and I think it was a wonderful transition moment, but he trusted me to do it, and it took me aback, but it was the most humbling and special invitations um, that I had received. And so, you know, he, while he was very much focused on, on, on growing the field, he was also very discerning. He was a very, very discerning man. And one of the things that gave, gave me incredible joy was bringing my students to the Porter Colloquium on a regular basis and having them introduce themselves to David Driscoll and him calling me afterwards to tell me what that meant to him. And so just incredibly, incredibly generous and, and, and thoughtful. And it's amazing how those Facebook memories pop up because just one popped up um, yesterday. And Kirsten, it was the one where you were at the colloquium and Fred Wilson was at the colloquium. And it was just, just an incredible time for um, my students to to meet David. And what's really, really wonderful is when they now call me and say their Facebook memory popped up and do I remember when I introduced them to David Driscoll, et cetera, et cetera. So the cycle is really quite strong and it's really, really quite tremendous. So, um, but when we talk about students, I, I have to say that you all know that Bellman is in a really, really exciting position. So the student interest in visual art is really growing exponentially right now in the Atlanta University Center. And it's currently at a very exciting phase of its evolution. And as you all know, President Mary Schmidt Campbell is an art historian and the former museum director. And you can imagine how special it is to have a leader who is a fierce champion for the arts at the helm. So you guys also know that in 2018, um, Spellman, in partnership with Clark Atlanta University and Morehouse College and with a generous award from the Walton Family Foundation, established the Atlanta University Center um, Art History and Curatorial Studies Collective. So the collective, um, which is spearheaded by Dr. Cheryl Finley and is part of the Department of Art and Art History, excuse me, of art and visual culture at Spelman is in large part responsible for that growth. And so, Naima, I know that you recently spent um, time with some of our students and that you hosted Dr. Finley and a group of, of students from Atlanta University Center when they visited you at LACMA. And I know even just a few short months ago, we were looking at a very different world. And we're mm -hmm. grappling now with a whole bunch of uncertainty in light of the coronavirus. And 
I'm sure that our lives in general, well, the art world specifically, are forever changed. And I also realize that we're in the midst of this current storm. You know, uh, we're in the midst of this. And my question might be premature, but I really wanted to know, at this early stage, what advice would you give students who are contemplating museum careers? Ooh, uh, as you mentioned, I think it's a it's a big question in a lot of ways because we are in the midst of the storm, and it feels in a lot of ways um, that, on one level, you're hearing about you know museums laying off or furloughing uh, employees, um, that you're hearing about these you know larger museums, the ones you thought would never ever um, have financial issues, you know really grappling um, or really having to come to grips with, grips with big questions around their futures, right? So you have the Met and SFMOMA and MoMA itself kind of really thinking about whether or not, um, not that they could, just, they could reopen necessarily, but what a new normal looks like. Um, but, you know, to, to young students, and I would actually say that, you know, when, when students came to, uh, to LACMA, um, we got a chance to tour the Julie Moretto exhibition, um, and it was really special to be able to not just walk them around campus, but then also answer question, any questions they may have about um, LACMA or the work I'm doing at LACMA or what they should do, you know, um, after school or uh, to them tell me about what classes they were taking. There's a genu gen genuine excitement, I think, and um, just a, a zest for the field and for contributing to the field in, in, in various different ways. Um, so I know that, you know, or I'm assuming that right now, just given the climate, that there may be a little doubt, I guess, um, from, you know, students who may be thinking about entering the field, because they might be thinking, is this the right career to go into when it doesn't necessarily seem as maybe essential as becoming a doctor or some other, you know, career choice. But I actually would argue that this is the, the perfect moment um, to, to continue to stay the course, to go into the arts, to be that champion. Um, because I think there's going to be so much that comes out of this moment, uh, whether or not it's you know artistic production or um, people just looking to the arts for that um, the breath of fresh air, that 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 desire for you know for for creativity, for that. Um, I know we're right now, for example in full production mode because we know that people are looking to museums to um, for inspiration. We know that they're looking for not just content, just for the sake of content, they're looking for something more. And they're, they're definitely looking to museums to create that content. And so I would say that even though it seems like a scary moment, um, that I think this is the moment to stay the course. But I, should, I would actually invite my colleagues to also win because I know this you know, pandemic is hitting us throughout the country in many different ways. Um, you know, LACMA has been fortunate enough in that we have not laid off a single employee um, because of the pandemic. So, which I know is much different than, than many other museums, but that's just to say that, um, you know, I think while museum careers may seem a little unpredictable, um, I also think that, um, that they'll weather the course. That I, I don't think anyone will question the need for artists or for curators or for um, educators or for people who are helping to uh, get is, get us through. I think this moment. Um, I mean, Valerie, I would love to hear your thoughts because I know in Virginia you're also experiencing, you know, um, just a high level of conversation and anxiety around not you personally, but you know that the South is experiencing a, a kind of a huge 
uptick in um, pandemic cases. So I would just love to hear what the conversation is like there and, and what you would tell students um, who are contemplating going into the field. Well, I, I will say that the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts has actually been holding firm in terms of its commitment to its employees. So we're in a safe space at this juncture. Um, and what I would say to students is that the field over the course, certainly of my uh, time in it, um, the field has professionalized. It's advanced in so many ways. And um, a career in the arts is um, as safe as any career. I would say almost even safer than being in middle management in any kind of business environment. Um, and it is a place that uh, one endeavors. It is it is one of those fields that um, it, it would never uh, trend out, if you will. There will always be a need for people to see the world reflected um, and to encounter perspectives that they ordinarily would not um, really be um, open to encountering in any kind of um, other context. Artists have a way of breaking down barriers and allowing dialogue to take place that, that in other spaces in our environment are unsafe to, to have. And so um, there is a deep responsibility to be of service to this field. And I think the artists um, are at the core of it, but I think professionals, whether they choose to be curators or educators, are certainly um, the engine that drives that home. And so I think this is always a place to endeavor. I think the field is a very safe place to be and that we need more people to be as committed as people like Dr. Driscoll um, to this field. This is Kirsten. May I add something? Um, Valerie, Andrea, and I all met at the Art Institute of Chicago back in the mid-90s. And mm -hmm. I was there as a museum educator. I was working on my dissertation, finishing it, and as was Andrea, and uh, who was a fellow, curatorial fellow. But as a mu museum educator, uh, I, I had, after I finished my dissertation, I had the opportunity to uh, become a visiting professor and uh, at Bard College, but I was also offered the opportunity to take a leave of absence from the museum with the expectation that I would return as an educator. And I'm glad that I didn't because we eventually we got a new director who fired all of the educators. And he, he fired all of the guards who'd been there 20 and 30 years and so he, he fired them and contracted out to a service. And so the corporatization of museum happened long before this pandemic. And so those institutions that aren't holding firm, that are choosing to get rid of um, staff that, that they see as a drain on, on capital, this is nothing new. But the pandemic is just an opportunity to, to clean house in some cases. I don't say that it's an isolated case. I will say it's a case that um, I'm not um, familiar with. Um, it's, it, it is institutions, and I think you're right. I think the culture of an institution comes from the top down. 
And that is changing as new generations of directors come. Um, there are other institutions that have opted to unionize to protect themselves against that. And then there are other institutions, such as the one I work in, where the director is very fixed firm and understands that people who are gallery attendants are people who are also artists, and they are the most vulnerable. And he has remained committed, uh, particularly to them. Um, they're not furloughed. They're not laid off. Uh, because he understands they are, in fact, the most vulnerable. That's very heartening. Yeah, very much so. I mean, because the stories that we're reading aren't yeah. those stories. And those are sobering stories that come into our inbox every day with these extraordinary pleas for their jobs and their livelihood and their expertise. And then when you look mm -hmm. at social media, which I don't do all that often, and the people who have been furloughed or have been laid off are mm -hmm. are there really, really speaking from their hearts about what they've put into their professions. They're all heart-wrenching and they're sobering. So, Valerie, I'm, I'm so pleased that you have affirmed that not every institution um, is taking that route. And that's, that's, mm -hmm. that is very heartening, absolutely. It's just been so, I think, um, heartwarming to see the outpouring of love and respect and just profound mm -hmm. loss. I think that the field has felt for Dr. Driscoll, right? Between Facebook comments and Instagram and then, you know, just the various articles and quotes. And I mean, it's just, not to say I was surprised, but I think it's just to read all about how he's touched so many different people's lives in so many different ways and to kind of hear how people have spent so much time with him and his family and Thelma. I mean, there's just so many different, um, I don't know, I've just read so many different heartwarming, I think, reflections on his life and his impact. Yeah, and I it's, agree. It's really, yeah. yeah. I agree, too. And that Culture Type article um, with so many, you were mentioning the quotes, Naima, and with so yeah, many exactly. so many amazing humans, you know, um, who whose life, uh, he touched in, in very intimate ways. It's just beautiful. And um, you really do realize that he really endeavored. He really understood his role um, as someone. And Keith Morrison, I think, wrote something on Facebook about how he really understood his role as to be so foundational. And he endeavored every day to do that, uh, whether it was creating art or creating opportunities. I mean, when you have something like a Driscoll Center, a center, <laughs> uh, an award, you know, um, for scholarship and and uh, accomplishments in the field that carries your name, I mean, that, that lets you know that you are not just a pioneer, but you are a servant to the field. And I think, you know, that, that, that really shows people always, um, it's not necessarily about the accolades that you can generate. It really is about how you can be of service to the field and the foundation you lay. And he was really all about that. I mean, really all about that. There's something about that generation. It's something about the makeup of people, mm -hmm. regardless of the generations they come from. You see, you know, foundation makers, even of younger generations. It's just something within the DNA. And he was just all about that. 
You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned Foundation Valerie because in, on the first floor of um, the Cosby Academic Center, there is a plaque, which I pass every day. And it is this incredible um, memory, memento, physical foundation that says mm -hmm. these are all the people that were really responsible for making this happen. And of course, front and center is his name. And so when I think cornerstone, I really mm -hmm. do think about this physical embodiment that he really did represent. And, and Anne Cullen Smith, who is the curator of, of collections, and I talk all the time about what that plaque really means in that building and how exceptional it is and what a privilege it is to, to walk by it every day and to think about what it took to make that building come to fruition. And everyone has the most incredible stories of, of spending time with him. It's, it's mm -hmm. just, he was indeed this incredible pillar and cornerstone and foundation. So to Naima, to Kirsten and Valerie, thank you all so much for your time and for your generosity today and for reminiscing and for reflecting on what an exceptional human being David Driscoll was. Thank you.